exclusive podcast from Impact 89FM. This is Impact Radio. The program is MSU Today, and I'm Russ White. Happy today to be at the Education Policy Center, visiting with co-director Sharif Shakrani. And Dr. Shakrani, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Let's start with a, a topic that people have heard about, but aren't always that up to speed on the No Child Left Behind Act. What is that exactly, and, and what is it designed to do? Okay. The No Child Left Behind Act is an educational initiative uh, that was uh, signed into law in the beginning of the year 2002. Uh, this was a, a resolution by both the Democrat and the Republican uh, to improve the educational achievement of students in grades K through 12 but more importantly, to try to close the massive education gap that exists in our schools between uh, the disadvantaged minority students and the majority white students, or between the students from disadvantaged, uh, economically disadvantaged district and other districts in the state. Uh, it was viewed as uh, an essential for the economic well-being of the nation uh, not only to ensure that we have well-educated populace, but also to make sure that we are well-prepared uh, for students to pursue uh, higher education in an efficient and effective manner in order to meet the changing demand of the workplace of the future. Is it correct to say that it's a pretty divisive act? I mean, it seems like you're either for it or against it, and what what is so controversial about it? Well, I think it is not very controversial. I think there was a major agreement by a whole lot of groups. Business uh, was very supportive of it. The uh, uh, Republican and Democrat, as I said, was in support of the law. Uh, the American Federation of Teachers, the National Education Association, the uh, Administrators Association were all in support of it. I mean, who would not want to improve the achievement of our students and to increase the competitive edge of the American economy in, in the world? We all want to do that. Uh, some of the disagreement dealt with, with the specific uh, aspect of the program dealing with the rewards and sac sanctions to schools that do not meet the accountability standards of the No Child Left Behind, what is commonly referred to as the adequate yearly progress, which is part of the accountability of that law. Basically, uh, in the past, the federal government uh, spent billions of dollars in education by sending checks to states and, and districts and hoping for the best. And uh, we did not see any significant changes uh, especially in the performance of disadvantaged minority students. So what the No Child Left Behind Act was intended to ensure that all students receive good education and that uh, additional funding will be made available to the states and to the district to help these students who are not doing well. But in return, the uh, federal government said, we will hold you accountable to what you say you will do. And if you do not achieve what you tell us you intend to achieve over the next few years, then you will, uh, we will assist you at the beginning. And if that doesn't help, uh, 
then we would like to see a change that will bring about an improvement in the achievement of all the students. Thus the term, no child left behind. So from that perspective, I believe, as the majority of the American people believe, that the intention of the law are very honorable and are essential for the economic well-being of the future of our population as well as the country. Uh, so um, uh, my belief is that the law will be reauthorized. Maybe it will be calibrated to address a few of the weaknesses. But the major aspects of the law, which is to bring an, about an improvement in the achievement of students in the area of mathematics, science, and language art, and to close the achievement gap, should be maintained, should be maintained for everybody. We cannot afford to have a significant percentage of our, popul of our population not learning the essential skills and knowledge that would help them obtain a meaningful job and lead an effective life. So from that perspective, there is no disagreement among educators, business, politicians that this need to be achieved. Otherwise, we will be falling behind other countries and we will see more and more of the high-tech industries moving to places that can provide the trained people to do so. And this we cannot afford to do. So it's not only a matter of uh, improving the knowledge of skill of students, it's a matter of national emergency. Dr. Shukrani, let's talk a little bit about that reauthorization. What can be done as it is reauthorized, hopefully, to be tweaked, to be better, and how is it working even now? Okay, the, the, the most important thing we need to ask is, oh, since the, uh, the signing uh, of the law in January of 2002, we are now in 2007, uh, has it worked? And the answer to that is yes. It has worked very well in improving the achievement of all the students, black, white, Hispanics, Asian, American Indian, rich and poor. We see an improvement in the performance in mathematics and reading at the elementary and the middle school, not so at the high school we see a slight closing of the gap between disadvantaged minority and uh, white or Asian students. A slight closing of the gap. But that is very key because before the act, the gap was in fact widening. So before you can bring about a significant decrease in the gap, you have to reverse the trend of a widening gap. And I believe we turned the corner. And so up to now, the law achieved its major objectives. There are some problems. The law says that all students must be able to meet the standard that the state set so that uh, students who are in special needs, special education students, or English language learners must meet the same standards as other students. 
where historically this has been hard to achieve. So what happened is that many schools would not meet the accountability requirement as defined by the adequate yearly progress because of the performance of the subpopulation, the small subgroups. These are special uh, education students or English language learners. And that has created some problem that must be addressed. Also, when sanctions kick in and school have uh, repeatedly failed to meet the adequate yearly progress, then uh, the parents of the children in these schools can ask for remediation to help their children. And the schools must pay for that remediation from the fund that they get from the federal government. Well, it's proving to be very hard. Very few parents chose that option. Not because they don't believe in remediation, but in most of our major urban areas, such remediations tend to be scarce or very expensive, much more expensive than funding that the district may have, which is, which tend to be in uh, sort of a financial uh, problem as it is, such as in, the, in Detroit. A Detroit school district can ill afford to provide funding to a private companies to provide remedial training to students because they are financially strapped. So that uh, option did not work well. Uh, the other option that is not working very well was the, that the uh, one of the sanctions for schools that are in the fifth years of not meeting the AYP is that the state can close the school or change the administration. Well, uh, that's, that sounds good, but it's very hard to accomplish. What states should have done was to provide more assistance to help guide them toward making an improvement. In other words, to provide more meaningful assistance than sanction, because sanctions tend to create problems. And here is the big issue. What happened is that some states recognized that if the tests that are used to determine whether they met the adequate yearly progress are difficult, most of their schools will not pass. And that would not be very good. The media would say this state is not doing well because, look, most of their schools did not meet the adequate yearly progress. So in, es in essence, some state manipulated the law by adopting very easy standards so they can get most of their buildings to pass and they would not be labeled as failing schools. So one of the, to me, an amazing thing is that a state like Arkansas uh, has 89% of their students being proficient, while a state like Massachusetts, which we all know has much better educational system, has 40% of their students not passing, only 60% passing. Why? It's because you are not playing on an even playing field. Arkansas selected very easy standards. Most students passed. Massachusetts selected rigorous standards that are more meaningful, and uh, more of their students did not pass. So what one of the... Uh, thing that is being considered at the federal level is something that we are not accustomed to in the United States history.
and that is national standards. So many people, including uh, Congressman Vernon Ayler from Michigan, uh, are suggesting that math is math, whether you live in Alaska or Florida, whether you live in Portland, Maine, or Portland, or Oregon, you need to have to know the same math. So why not uh, define what are the standards that all students should achieve and then measure these standards? Uh, these are not subjective standards. We are not testing history or civics. We are testing mathematics and reading. A good reader is a good reader, regardless of where they live. Thus, we will be able to compare how the students in Arkansas are doing versus the students in Maine or Massachusetts or Michigan. So now we see many people from both sides of the aisle are proposing that for the No Child Left Behind to work effectively, we must define what all students should know and be able to do and measure these common standards. Thus, we will be able to tell whether a state is doing a good job or it's not a good, doing a good job, a district is doing a good job or not, or a school is doing a good job or not. I think the parents would want to know whether their son or daughter will be able to compete for jobs, not only in Little Rock, Arkansas, but in Chicago, or in uh, Atlanta, or any place in the country, because the colleges and universities, uh, when they admit students, they admit them on a test of their own. They would not say to them, what kind of a test did you take in your uh, schools? So we need to have an assurance to post-secondary education that the students are well prepared, given a well-defined reference point, which are these standards. So there is uh, a push right now at the national level by well-known educators from throughout the country to define uh, common standards that states may adopt as the basis for their assessment. And thus, we will be able to um, tell the business, the parents, and the policymakers in a reliable fashion whether the students uh, know the skills that we value as essential for them to progress efficiently in their academic ladder. See, the problem with, with what's happening is that the gap starts at the elementary level. If it's not addressed, the gap will get bigger. And as the gap gets bigger, when a student reaches the high school, they will say to him or her, you are not prepared to take the more rigorous math or science courses. At the high school, at the beginning of the high schools, what is happening is that we are determining the future of our young people as early as the eighth grade. So that if we want to have more engineers, more scientists, more people in technology, more people who are able to teach literacy to, to children, 
we are closing the door on many of these students as early as when they are 13 years old. And I think that is not fair. That is not even moral. So it is imperative that we provide corrective action. And when the majority of these students who are not meeting these skills are disadvantaged minority and poor students, then the problem is extremely expensive to our nation and to our future. This is Impact Radio at Michigan State University, and we're visiting with Dr. Sharif Shakrani of the Education Policy Center. Sir, the the No Child Left Behind Act, has it had any particular impact here in Michigan, or does it even propose any specific challenges to Michigan? It does. Uh, Michigan uh, is more than many states in the Midwest. Uh, There is a, a huge disparity between the uh, uh, core urban district and the uh, suburban or rural district in terms of achievement. Uh, And so uh, if you look at the achievement gap in Michigan, it is huge. It is bigger than the national average. And so it creates an additional challenge. What creates an additional challenge to Michigan is the financial crisis we are in. We, We are not able to spend more money on education understandably so because of the the economy of the state. But at the same time, we see a growth in the proportion of our population who are disadvantaged minority. And if these students are not getting as good education as other students, then the gap is going to continue. So it creates a bigger challenge for us in Michigan than in many other states, even among neighboring states like Ohio. Uh, for example, which has similar configuration of population, but they are doing a better job of closing the gap. So that's a challenge. But I contend that the No Child Left Behind will help Michigan because it could pinpoint where we need to take corrective action. It could pinpoint the schools, the district that need to take a different direction in improving their educational system. Without taking action in these places, the trend, the undesirable trend, will continue. So I believe that it is uh, even more essential for Michigan to look very carefully at the results from the state assessment, from the schools that are not meeting the adequate yearly progress, and uh, collaboratively define and implement effective solutions for these problems. Otherwise, our economic future is not going to be any better than it is now. But if we can make this corrective action and thus increase the proportion of our students who go to college, and hopefully when they graduate they stay in the state, we can make a turn in the economic uh, situation of the state and make a turn in the ti- in term of stemming the departure of high-tech Uh, jobs in the state and hopefully we can even improve on the uh, automotive uh, productivity because the jobs in the automotive industry in the future are not the jobs of the the past. They are jobs that require well-educated, well-trained employees and these students 
must come well equipped in mathematics, science, and language art. And the No Child Left Behind could help us ensure that our students, all of our students, will be prepared for the jobs of the future. Dr. Shakrani, what exactly is the Education Policy Center here at MSU, and what are its goals and or its mission? The Education uh, Policy Center at Michigan State University is a university-wide center. It is uh, intended to help uh, policymakers and educators across the state and across the nation uh, understand the impact of educational policies as well as to analyze data and information to help inform policymakers about the impact or implication of uh, policies that they may be contemplating. Uh, it is intended to look very carefully at research uh, as a way to help uh, our policymakers at the state level and at the national level make more sense of educational policy and to be better informed for the different aspects of what is being proposed. So uh, in the past, we have looked at uh, major issues such as uh, charter schools, uh, the, the finance of education. We looked at accountability, uh, what implications certain programs may have on the achievement of students. In the future, we want to look very carefully at the impact of the new uh, high school graduation requirement, what schools are doing to implement it, what will work effectively, what may not work effectively, and to make school districts and uh, school buildings and school administrators and staff aware of the implication of certain uh, educational policy or educational direction they may be uh, contemplating. Dr. Shakrani, let's say Governor Granholm or President Bush comes to you and just says, you're now my education czar. Are there a couple of things you think we would need to do right away? And maybe it's the same, but maybe on a state level and then a federal level? Uh, indeed, uh, I would be uh, ecstatic if somebody would come and ask me that. I, I think that uh, there is a problem among our urban districts in terms of dropout at the high school level. The proportion of students, uh, especially among minority students, who drop out from high school is just unacceptable. And I would uh, define that as a top priority for uh, the state in education. We must study what are the causes of dropout, and we must be able to address these causes because uh, it is extremely important for us to increase the proportion of students who finish high school, because if you don't finish high school, you're not going to go beyond that. And also that it is uh, students who finish high school effectively tend to, con tend to contribute positively to the economy of the state. Students who drop out tend to be a burden on the state economically by uh, quite often getting involved in uh, illegal activities that cost the state uh, uh, in terms of uh, penalties or prisons or something like this, a huge amount of money. So uh, dealing with the dropout issue is number one. The second issue is improving the uh, performance of our students in high school, especially the male students. 
we are seeing uh, an undesirable trend in a decline of the performance of uh, students, the male students in mathematics and science. Uh, in the past, uh, mathematics and science were the dom domains of the males. They took more math and science courses. Females did not do as much. A positive thing is that we're seeing more and more females taking more in math and science courses. And so their scores are going up. However, we are seeing a decline for the males. So while the gap between the males and females are is closing, but the way it's closing is inappropriate. You don't want to close the gap by having one group increase while the other one decrease. You want to have uh, a stronger improvement among the females while we continue to improve for the males. So that really worries me. And in fact, that's very easy to see by just looking at the proportion of females in colleges. It's significantly higher than males. And that is a danger to the, to the state. Well, this is happening in other states, but it is more pronounced in Michigan. So I would say that we need to strengthen the uh, effectiveness of the high school programs. And you start by stemming the increase in the dropout rate, improving the mathematics and science. And I think the state of Michigan, the governor, uh, made a giant step forward on April 16 of 2006 when she signed into law the high school graduation requirement. What I would say to the governor and to the legislators, make darn sure that your good intentions are implemented, that there is no uh, way of watering down this requirement or making it easier for school districts not to implement them because these are very, very good uh, direction for the state and they should be implemented faithfully. If, if President Bush come to ask me, I will say to him, please maintain the No Child Left Behind, emphasize the strength of improving the achievement and closing the achievement gap, but uh, tighten up on the sanctions and on uh, the needs of, of the subpopulation of students in special education and English language learners because it's, it is not fair to expect exactly the same expectation and the same amount of time for students who are way behind the other students that uh, there has to be some consideration of what is doable. In other words, let's be more pragmatic about what can be done but we, we should rely on research to tell us how best bring about an improvement for these students. But I am a very strong believer in the concept that we should not leave any child behind. That is our moral responsibilities as adults to ensure that future generations are well prepared to deal with our changing society and to, to be able to enter the workplace effectively so that they can uh, be contributing members of our society. Here, here. <clears throat> Is there anything important we've left out, sir, or just some final thoughts you'd like to make? Well, the only uh, is that um, I, I recall uh, President Bush making a speech uh, almost the first week uh, after he was um, 
uh, certified as being sworn president, in. sworn in, right. He said uh, that in his years as governor of a state of Texas, he viewed as education as the federal government view defense as the most important responsibility, that education at the state level is the most important responsibility, as is defense is the most important responsibilities for the national government at the federal I think we, we, we want to keep sight of that, that it is the state that runs education. It's not the federal government. Almost 82% of the funding for education come from local or state funding, and in Michigan it's even higher than that, almost 90%. So I think it would behoove us to look more carefully of how we can make these very scarce resources work effectively. It would behoove us to work collaboratively between unions, administrators, state, local district, large district, and small district on building on the knowledge of skills that we have to improve the skills for all of our students. And toward that end, we need to improve the quality of teachers. We cannot afford to have a tangible proportion of teachers in some of our urban areas that are in dire need of improvement who are not qualified to teach in their field. We need to make sure that if a teacher is to teach math or physics or science or language art or geography, they must be trained and certified to these fields. Without that, the students are not going to learn well. So teacher quality should be a very important priority, not only for Michigan, but for the nation as a whole. And in Michigan, uh, a significant proportion, almost 20% of our teachers, are not qualified to teach in the field that, in which they are presently teaching. That's Dr. Sharif Shakrani, who's been our guest on Impact Radio. He is the co-director of MSU's Education Policy Center, and there's a lot more about Dr. Shakrani and his center's work at www.epc.msu.edu. And for more MSU Today, you can visit us on the web at msutoday.com. And I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. We're back here with your Friday Night Insight. That was Russ White with Sharif Shakrani. Sharif Shakrani is the co-director of MSU's Educational Policy Center. Now we're going to take a little look, well, actually a big look, at some capital news. Um, this week, the Michigan Senate killed the governor's proposed two-penny uh, tax on Thursday with a vote of 22 to 16. The two-penny tax was actually a 2% tax on services. The proposed tax was part of the plan to cover losses of the expired single business tax. The Senate also proposed a number of cuts to balance the budget, including a $40 million cut to revenue sharing, which includes money to local governments, public roads, and fire and safety. Actually, Detroit's government would take a large hit of that with $12 million in cuts. The Senate also proposed a $34 million cut to the 21st Century job, uh, Jobs Fund, a $65 million cut to public health, and cuts to public education by $34 per pupil. Though the Michigan Senate isn't just looking at cuts 
to balance the budget. Next week, they'll be looking at a business tax plan to replace the single business tax. Also in Capitol News, Representative Kim Meltzer, a Republican from Macomb County's Clinton Township, proposed a bill to decriminalize participation in the NCAA tournament office pools. Now, this is kind of for those NCAA, uh, you know, fans out there. Currently, the fine for participating in an office pool is like any other illegal gambling um, $1,000 fine in a, or a one-year jail time. Um, her proposal would include some restrictions. Uh, there would be a maximum entry fee of $20. The pool couldn't exceed more than 20 people, and the revenue could only be divided among its participants. Um, some of the pros especially coming from the representative herself, uh, saying that, you know, having um, some restrictions on office pools sort of limits the the celebratory environment of the NCAA championships. But on the other side, the con side, a lot of people feel that this is just like any other gambling, which has negative consequences such as addiction. Um, so this bill will be coming up in the House this coming week and to be deba- debated on. You can check out some more information at www.legislature.mi.gov. Coming up, we've got an interview, uh, thanks to Russ White, with Trey Rogers. John Trey Rogers is a professor of turf grass science at MSU. His new book is Lawn Geek. Rogers offers some tips on mowing, watering, and fertilizing your way to a beautiful lawn. And that's coming up on your Friday Night Insight here on your Impact 88.9 FM. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White, today visiting with Trey Rogers, who's professor of crop and soil science at Michigan State University and is out with a book called Lawn Geek. And Trey, first of all, welcome to MSU Today. Thank you, Russ. My pleasure to be here. First of all, what is a lawn geek and are you one? Oh, I don't know. I, 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 I know I'm a lawn geek. Um, I'm one of these guys that gets up every morning and does think about what's happening with the grass on a daily basis. Might not necessarily be lawns, but it's certainly golf courses, athletic fields, and spills over into lawns. If you've ever taken a walk with me, and my wife can testify to this, I'm always looking at the lawns and have even wanted to, and maybe once or twice walked up to the neighbor and tried to give him a couple of pointers. But uh, yeah, I totally think I'm a lawn geek. I think that Someone who probably is a lawn geek is someone who really is a perfectionist and have found a place where they can toil and never really get bored. Sometimes I think a lawn geek could be described as a person who's a competitor. Because sometimes I see people compete to have the best lawn. And maybe they were a competitor in sports or something else or in uh, the arts. And uh, now they've the, the competitiveness has spilled over in their later years to uh, having the best lawn. So it could be either one of those things and could be something else, but definitely there are lawn geeks out there, and I'm one. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. I think part of what you say in the book is that it maybe isn't as hard as some of the other books or experts will have you believe. I mean, what what are some of the maybe misconceptions or basic overall tips that someone should uh, have to have a good lawn? Well, I think, first of all, you're right about that. Uh, I wouldn't say that other people try to make it overcomplicated. Um, I just think I've tried to come up with a way to to make what they were trying to be simple continue to be simple, maybe in a little bit more of a, a straightforward way. Um, and I have to give a lot of credit to the person who helped me write this book, Sonia Castleberry, because she did a nice job of of that of doing exactly that, helping me to get this across. If I had to say 
what was the best thing to do for your lawn, it, it would have to be, it would have to start with the lawnmower. And yes, you're going to spend a lot of time with that lawnmower. And yes, that might be where you spend, you know, several hours uh, during the during the summer. But it is your most important tool. Because if you won't scalp the grass and if you'll mow on a frequent basis, you will be doing exactly what that lawn needs in order to be dense and healthy and thick. And that's why we call the one-third rule. We, we call it a rule. It's probably just a guideline. But at the same time, we want you to not cut more than a third of the leaf blade off during any single mowing. And if you could just adhere to that rule only throughout the summer, it would the results would be amazing. What about watering tray, Rogers? That's another thing we hear. Should be morning, should be night, should be a little, should be a lot. What are the watering basics? The idea behind watering is that you need to provide the plant what it needs. So when someone says, how much should you water? I ask the question of what time of year is it? What have been the conditions? Is it hot and dry outside? Is it cloudy and humid? Because each one of these will determine how much water the plant needs. Now, when we get into normal summer months, the plant probably uses in Michigan about an inch of water per week. But again, that would probably not kick on till around June 1st and would kick off again probably around August 20th or something like that. Give or take a week depends on the, depends on the week. Now, if somebody says to me, when should we water? I always say, I like to water early in the morning. Very simply, it's when the wind's at its least, so your irrigation is going to hit its target. It's not going to water the street. And also, I like to water early in the morning if, so when the water does hit the plant and goes into the soil, the sun comes up and dries off the leaf. And this is a good tactic because it will, know, it will help to suppress diseases. Because if you watered at night, for example, it could stay wet all night. This could be a harboring for potential for diseases, especially during humid summer nights. So those are my tips on watering. Fertilizer is another topic. I think I learned correctly from one of your colleagues, Ron Calhoun, that fall is actually the best time. People have cabin fever in the winter or something, and they get out there and want to blow a lot of fertilizer on the lawn in March, April, May, or whatever. But is fall the best, and what about some fertilizer tips? If you're only going to fertilize once a year, fall is the best time. However, um, you know, oftentimes people do want to fertilize in the spring, and uh, sometimes might not be necessary. Uh, probably the thing that I like to have people do is probably wait as long into May as possible. And in truth, the matter is, if they fertilized in the fall, they probably could. They can probably wait all the way until uh, the middle of May, even Memorial Day which is one of the reasons why we love to use what we call the holiday plan, which means fertilize Memorial Day, then again maybe 4th of July, depending on uh, whether you can kind of assess that, but certainly around Labor Day, and then fertilize again somewhere between Halloween and Thanksgiving. And it's that late fall fertilization that will give you that nice green look, green up in the spring, and allow you to wait all the way into Memorial Day. So. Ron Calhoun is very right, as he always is. So let's recap a little bit. Lawn Geek is your book, Trey Rogers. What are 
If you had to really come up with the best couple of three tips, or maybe look at it this way, if you wanted someone to take one thing out of your book, what would it be? Well, first of all, I'd tell you to mow correctly. Don't scalp. Follow the one-third rule. You'll be amazed how much this will help you. Second, water early in the day. And the third thing would be is follow the directions on the back of the fertilizer bag. One thing to remember about that, those directions, is those companies aren't going to gain anything from you uh, misapplying or them or that fertilizer not working because they know you're not going to come back. And they don't make their money off you by you buying one bag of fertilizer. They want you to buy, buy several bags of fertilizer for several years. Now they start to make a profit. So it doesn't do them any good to give you bad information. Plus, always remember, where that information come from? came from places like Michigan State University who went out and did that type of research so, and put it exactly on the same kind of grass that you're using. So trust the bag, follow the directions, and remember twice as much is never twice as good. Any final thoughts, Trey, or uh, anything important we've left out? Well, I, I think there's lots of information that, that people can get, and you can get that information through a lot of websites. We have a nice website at Michigan State. I work with the company Briggs & Stratton to develop a nice website. We call that Yard Doctor, yarddoctor.com. So I'm very comfortable a lot, of our, a lot of our information is correct, just like I'm comfortable that the, the book is correct, Lawn Geek. So. Trey Rogers, crop and soil science professor at Michigan State with his new book, Lawn Geek. And I do happen to know the site, at least at MSU, for a lot more information is a simple one to remember, turf.msu.edu. And this has been MSU Today on Impact Radio. You can check us out on the web at msutoday.com. And I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. You're listening to Friday Night Insight here on your Impact 88.9 FM. That was our interview with Trey Rogers. John Trey Rogers is a professor of turfgrass science at MSU. And if you think that uh, you haven't had your uh, enough of Russ White, we've actually got another interview coming up from MSU today. Here's an interview with Jim Forger. Jim Forger is the dean of MSU's College of Music. The School of Music has become the College of Music at MSU, and Forger talks about the difference between a school and a college and details of his goals for the new MSU College of Music, and that's coming right up here on your Impact 88.9 FM. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White, happy to be visiting with Jim Forger today. And Jim, let me be one of the first to greet you as Dean Forger rather than Director Forger, and welcome to the program. Thank you, Russ. Great to be chatting with you. It indeed is an exciting time for the faculty students uh, in the newly formed College of Music at MSU. That's why we're visiting with Dean Forger today. Uh, MSU's uh, acclaimed School of Music is now MSU's College of Music. And explain to us why that's sort of important and how it all came about. Well, I think uh, uh, several years ago, former Provost Luana Simon, now our president, uh, raised a discussion on campus regarding possible reconfiguration of liberal arts and learning on the MSU campus. And our faculty proposed a configuration as an independent college, which more uh, accurately reflects, I think, the size and scope, the stature, the achievement of our unit compared to peers across the nation. Uh, we've had significant uh, and incremental investment in the school, which has led to the creation of 
distinct and dynamic programs led by superb faculty. And those individuals have been responsible for recruiting an ever-increasing student body in terms of quality, quantity, uh -huh. achievement, and it, this distinction uh, and, in, and uh, administrative configuration, I think, more readily reflects uh, our stature across uh, the United States. Talk about the mission, then, of the college. What are your, your goals for the College of Music? Hey. Well, we have several goals. Uh, primary among them is to develop one of uh, the best possible professional schools that we can muster. Uh, this would include uh, you can't do everything in life, and we recognize that, and we aim to be selective in where we seek to achieve national excellence. Uh, we have areas of performance in music therapy and uh, music education that, uh, and jazz studies in the forefront. And uh, among, uh, we, we are very proud to try to bring together excellence in performance together with the reality that performers are all music educators. We have a first rank music education program, but beyond those in that program, we seek to have a number of our students from across disciplines active in outreach and engagement in this community and beyond. Uh, we are instituting a new office, an associate dean for outreach and engagement, uh, an individual named Rhonda Buckley, who is one of the nonprofit leaders in Washington, D.C. currently, and she was going to lead us into a new era of uh, collaborations uh, in the greater Lansing area. Uh, she will be the executive director of the Community Music School, and we have some new exciting developments, uh, interactions with the partners in the city of Detroit. An additional portion of our mission is uh, our, the contribution that we have an opportunity to make on this campus, a large campus with 44,000 students. Uh, next year is going to be the Year of the Arts uh, at MSU, and the School of Music, together with our colleagues in the other arts, aim to make a difference. One of our responsibilities needs to be the opportunity to provide uh, music lessons, uh, performance opportunities, and classes that actively get folks uh, uh, creating music or involved in attending performances and studying and understanding music. So I think that that can make a difference in the lives of people, and we have the opportunity to do that on the MSU campus, and that's one of our challenges and one of the things that we look forward to developing. Expound on that a bit, because outreach is so important to the mission of the entire university. Talk about the outreach initiatives you'll be growing here. Well, we, uh, w I think to make a difference in the lives of individuals from uh, uh, very young people with our distinctive early childhood program through uh, youngsters in public school, through those uh, in in adult education, uh, one can make that difference through the arts uh, in sequential learning. And there are many arts institutions that have the ability to periodically share concerts, which is really exposing people to an art form. I think what really makes a difference is the sequential instruction, and we are planning to develop programs. We currently have programs, for instance, in Detroit with Jazz Studies, where uh, advanced students and faculty mentors uh, teach uh, 12 weeks each semester in a Saturday program uh, with inner-city youth uh, developing their reading skills, their improvisation skills, their compositional skills, uh, and uh, that, uh, to me, can make a difference in, in the lives of folks. They need to gain uh, skills and 
concepts and uh, a whole range of of abilities which uh, is introduced gradually over time and uh, I think that we have a, a great commitment to uh, doing that through uh, through the art of music. Do most uh, students that graduate with a degree in music stock the orchestras of the world and the jazz quintets and whatnot or do they teach or what do most people do with degrees? I think that uh, there are a wide-ranging uh, uh, set of uh, opportunities out there. Uh, within music education, uh, we have a placement rate through uh, the undergraduate program and graduate programs of 100%. So there are a lot of people that are joining university faculties uh, and providing excellence in music education through the public schools. On the performance side, there are numbers of folks who uh, put in a variety of things together, from performing in orchestras to um, playing chamber music uh, and also teaching. I think it's interesting to note that many of the orchestras throughout the United States, uh, particularly in urban areas, are becoming uh, the educational institution in that city. And there are a new set of skills that are required uh, for uh, folks to make a real impact. Uh, one can reflect on Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. They're a, f a fine performance organization in the city of, of New York, and they travel the, the world, but they also are actively engaged in, um, in residencies and providing outreach uh, uh, and, and education. We're fortunate to have uh, three distinctive musicians on our full-time jazz faculty, Rodney Whitaker, former bass player of Lincoln Center Jazz, uh, Wes Anderson, who uh, Warm Daddy Anderson, who was Winton's Marcellus's uh, uh, lead alto for 17 years, and Derek Gardner, who played lead trumpet for Harry Connick Jr., uh, all actively involved in outreach through those national organizations, and now uh, working together uh, as members of the professors of jazz at MSU, performing together, but also providing a great deal of outreach and sequential instruction, contact with. Uh, students uh, throughout Michigan. Dean Forger, summarize for us again, if you will, then why it's important that it's a College of Music now, and, and what would you like people to know, to take away and know about the College of Music at MSU? I think we have a very distinctive college that blends the best in performance, the best in the practical application uh, uh, of uh, teaching and commitment to student learning, whether they be music ed majors or whether they be be uh, performance majors. Also, we have a uh, the Pioneer Music Therapy program that's that uh, works with a, a very distinctive population of, of uh, uh, individuals with a variety of challenges. I think that we have a fabulous faculty that has led programmatic uh, uh, advances, and uh, we believe that uh, our community uh, uh, of musicians can make a difference in this state and in the nation. That's Dean Jim Forger of MSU's College of Music, and there's a lot more information on the web at music.msu.edu. And please visit MSU Today on the web at msutoday.com. I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. 
Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Saturday nights from 8 p.m. until 2 a.m., tune into the cultural vibe to hear the best in both local and national hip-hop, plus live mixing on the ones and twos. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is Governor Jennifer Granholm. Next week, I'll be speaking at the annual Governor's Education Summit. The summit is a conversation with educators, business people, and Michigan citizens about how we can ensure that our schools are helping all kids learn and how educational success for our children translates into economic success for our state. Experts across the country agree that investing in education is the single most effective strategy for stoking a state's economic growth. And that's why our schools and our kids are the foundation of our state's economic plan. We've already come together to make a number of groundbreaking changes in Michigan, changes that raise the bar for Michigan students and ensure that our kids have the tools they need to succeed in the classroom and in life. We've implemented new standards for K-8 through schools and set in place new high school standards that are among the most rigorous in the nation. And we created the Michigan Promise Scholarship, $4,000 that gives every single student in Michigan the opportunity to get technical training or attend college. I've laid out a budget that is a blueprint to ensure that we can invest in our kids and our schools, as well as in diversifying our economy, training and retraining Michigan workers, and providing universal access to affordable health care. But that means that we need to act now with real urgency to solve our fiscal crisis. Working together and investing in education, we can make sure that Michigan is the best place for us and our kids to live, learn, and earn. Thank you for listening. And we're back here with Friday Night Insight here on your Impact 88.9 FM. I'm your host, Melissa Horse, and I'm actually almost out of here, but just a couple of noteworthy things. You guys may have missed your chance to harass a couple of our DJs down at the East Lansing Film Festival. We've got a couple people down there for When the Music Dies. It's a documentary about the, well, what else? Music and radio. And so that's the reason why we've got some Impact DJs down there. But there are a lot of great music, uh, or great movies, sorry, sorry. I've got music on the brain right now. Um, you can check out www.elff or elff.com. Stands for East Lansing Film Festival. Um, some of the movies include the uh, Academy Award nominated Jesus Camp, which was up for best documentary feature um, at the last Academy Award. It actually lost out to an inconvenient truth. Some other things to consider for this week. Um, the ASMSU elections are actually coming up. It's your opportunity to vote for your ASMSU reps for both Student Assembly and Academics Assembly. You can even vote for yourself because there are a couple of positions where um, we don't have too many people, uh, I guess, signed up for representative positions. So if you are interested in a student leadership uh, leadership 
leadership position, it's not too late to run your own uh, writing campaign. And you can find out more information about that on www.asmsu.msu.edu. Um, and I guess that's about all the time that we've got here. We've got flashback coming up next. Um, it's been a great hour, and I hope to see you guys next week for Friday Night Insight, which is every Friday from 7 to 8 p.m. here on your Impact 88.9 FM. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.